May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. A few years ago, uh, my son Zachary and I went to uh, Nome, Alaska. Good to see Zach home here this weekend from college. And uh, we're in that stage of life where one comes home and another leaves, you know, so they're always switching out. No, not all four sons ever in the same zip code at the same time, almost ever. So, um, yeah, it, great to see Zach home and Benjamin's gone and, of course, Nicholas is out. So I was thinking about this time when we went to this trip uh, to Alaska, to Nome. We're in this little city. If you've ever been to Nome or known anything about it, it's only a square mile, one mile each way. And then there's nothing but a million acres of nothing all around it. I mean, there's a sea on one side and nothing. I mean, just it's just um, tundra as far as, you you know, musk ox or whatever they are. You know, you see an occasional that. But there are some exciting things to do. And we did what you could do in Nome, Alaska. We went um, out to the Bering Sea and on the beach and, and got down with our friend. And, and he taught us how to pan for gold. I still have a tiny little bit of gold. <laughs> it's probably worth about 82 cents, um, and it's uh, carried around in my in my uh, my computer bag for some reason. Anyway, we went and we we found this old about 80 miles outside of um, outside of Nome. There was this old uh, abandoned Catholic boarding school that was like in the middle of nowhere, and there was these great buildings, and they were old and kind of torn down. and And so we went exploring the grounds around there, and there was this big tub. Out there, somebody had constructed this giant tub and had a, a line running in it from a hot spring, from a natural hot spring. So we all, you know, jumped in the hot spring and tub, you know, and it was like really, really hot. And so I jumped right back out, screaming like, um, like a, a school child or something. We were out there, we were looking for, for bears and moose, constantly on the lookout for bears and moose because you don't want to run and die there one of them, you know. And, uh, and so we were looking. We did actually see a brown bear. We, we were in the car. It was um, off on the side in the tundra, so we felt relatively safe. Ate king crab right out of the Bering Sea. And perhaps the most fun I had is we went fishing for salmon. The salmon run had just begun, and so we went fishing for salmon in the Nome River. I should tell you that I'm a horrible fisherman. Um... Abby will might tell you if you asked her about some um, ridiculous story where one time I was out fishing and went to cast the pole and threw the entire rod and reel and everything into the water. Don't believe her if she tells you that story, but, you know, something like that might have happened somewhere along the line. But I had tremendous success catching salmon. I mean, it was amazing. I mean, we were reeling in salmon one after another. So Zach and I are out there with our friend Aiden. We're catching salmon. We, Zach became an aficionado at, at, at filleting them, and we all became masters at eating salmon. And if you know anything about salmon, salmon are born in a river. Uh, they, they're in the river for a very short time, and they kind of mature, and then they're out into the ocean, and they live their entire lives in the ocean. And then, at the very end of their lives, they swim back to the river from the ocean. They go back to the very place where they were were first hatched. I mean, it's amazing that the instinct in the salmon swim upstream, either lay eggs or fertilize as their proclivities are, and then they die. So when you're out there catching them, you know, on their way into the river, you are catching them at their very last days of life. You know, it's not shooting fish in a barrel, but it's probably about as close as you can get and still be fishing in a stream. 
And so the bears and the people that, that catch the salmon, they catch them right at the end of their lives, where they are most vulnerable. And they're swimming upstream. So they're most beleaguered. You know? I mean, you're getting them at the very, uh, about the easiest time you could ever possibly fish. It's a terrible disadvantage for the salmon. But I would think, I'm glad you got that one, Sarah. I, I, I would think that salmon would be a natural metaphor if Paul had known about them. If St. Paul had known about salmon, I'm guessing he probably didn't. I don't know what uh, there are salmon in the Mediterranean, but I think not. If he had known about salmon, though, I think he would have picked up with this one and, and run with that metaphor. You know, the salmon, they, they, they kind of go against the flow, you know? They're, they're, they're tenacious and tough, you know? They're, they're counterculturalists, these salmon, you know? They, they, everything is going one way and they're going the other direction. They're not afraid to be seen. These salmon literally jump out of the river. I mean, you can see them come out of the river. We could push the metaphor all the way. You know, they're fighters. They fight for the salmon way of life. You know, they're, they're not afraid of humans or bears. They're going right at it, you know. They're... If, if Paul had known about salmon, I think maybe, maybe the Christian fish symbol would have been a salmon, you know. I don't know how that works, but, but that's not the metaphor he picks up on. And certainly not the metaphor he picks up on in Philippians. Instead, Paul uses, he uses symbols like a soldier in Ephesians. He uses a symbol like an athlete in, in 1 Corinthians. And here, I think, if he had picked up on a, a real operational metaphor, it would have been a tree. He, something standing firm, rooted into the ground. Something that is unmovable. It wasn't something that kind of goes against the flow so much as something that is not, it's not affected by the, the, the changing environment around it. Um, a few weeks ago, I, I went down to Springfield, Ohio, near Dayton, where I grew up, um, to see my niece play tennis and my nephew play football. So my niece played tennis on a Thursday evening, and then my nephew plays football on a Friday night. So I had you know an overnight there, and, and I, I had most of the day Friday free. I could do whatever I wanted. And... As luck would have it, I had my golf clubs in my trunk, you know, imagine that. And so, um, and so I thought to myself, you know, I know what I'll do. I'll go down to Snyder Park. It's this great park in the middle of Springfield, and, and there's a, a golf course on the back side of it, and I'll go down there and, you know, get a quick nine in and then take my mom to lunch because I'm a good son, right? And, and then, I, you know, I'll have the afternoon, and then I'll go catch my nephew play in football, and it'll be a great day. So I drive down to the park, and as I get into this park, you know, this is a place where, um, where kids used to hang out a lot. I mean, it's a, it's a sizable park with a big figure eight kind of um, uh, you know, road in the middle of it. And kids used to go down there, and they would, they would ride their hot rod, drive their hot rod cars down there, you know, and, and they would you know, squeal out you know, and, and play their music real loud and, and all this. And as I got down there, I noticed the very first thing is that they changed the driving pattern so that you can't do that anymore. And I thought, how, how rude that was, you know? How could you possibly go and do that? And, and then, as I was driving by the lagoon, there used to be this, um, this topless mermaid statue out in the middle of the lagoon. And kids used to swim out there and, and put an undergarment on her so she would be covered. Um, and she was gone. There was no mermaid out in the lagoon anymore. And I was, 
I was, you know, I was aghast. I can't believe that they would do that. And then I was turned the corner and I was heading across this, there's this old steel bridge. It has this green, blue patina on it. It's, I've driven across it many, many times. And they closed one lane of traffic off. So that only one car can get across it now at a time. And I presume because the bridge is getting old, you know, it's going to need replaced and they'll probably put some hideous old gray concrete structure over there you know but but there was the bridge and all these changes in my park and then I turn the corner and I go down this long road towards the golf course and there wasn't a single car in the golf course not a single car at the parking lot and I get up there closer and I notice that the pro shop is completely abandoned and the signs are all gone Those no-good, dirty dogs in the Springfield Park Department have closed down the golf course. That is un-American. Now, you know, that's just wrong, isn't it? But the thing that I noticed as I drove through the park is the trees. Everything was changing. Everything, the pattern, the, the, the statues, the bridges, the golf course, everything was changed except these trees. You should see these trees. I mean... They have been around so long. That, I mean, you do, I don't, they've seen president. They were probably there when Lincoln was president. They are robust trees. I mean, these are blue-collar trees. They change their own oil, you know. They, um, they think the best kind of wine is beer. They are tough trees, you know. They're, they're granite strong. And they were exactly the same as when I remember them. Unchanged. That's Paul's metaphor. Look at the text. Will you, will you take a moment and look with me at the text? In, in Philippians chapter 4, the epistle lesson for today, look how it begins. And therefore, my brothers, or my brothers and sisters, this would be an easy translation, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, look at this, stand firm thus in the Lord. Stand firm. It's a command. It's what's called an imperative in the, in the original. It's, um, it's not a, um, a suggestion, but a command. Stand firm, but not a bossy one, you know. Um, this is sort of the encourager's command, you know. It's, um, it's, it's Adrian yelling up into the boxing ring, Rocky, get up! You know, it's not like she's telling him to get up. That was my best Adrian, by the way. Get up, you know. It's, but it's, um, it, it's, it's the encouragement command. It's the... It's the mother who says to her daughter, Oh, honey, play that Beethoven piece for your grandmother. It's not really a suggestion. It's a command, but it comes with a very a gentle tone. And Paul says, Stand firm. Stand firm in the Lord. Stand firm in the Lord. There's a shared faith, isn't there? Continue in this Christian faith. And the only reason he would say this is because there is pressure on them from the outside not to stand firm. There is a push against them to give up, to go a different direction, to allow the changes that are happening around them to affect them in such a way that they no longer are in the Lord. And Paul's encouragement, his command, stand firm, hold fast. I thought about how this command differs from others, you know. I mean, like, you wouldn't say to somebody... Continue that great love you have for chocolate ice cream. <laughs> you wouldn't say that, would you? You'd, I mean, of course you're going to continue your love for chocolate ice cream. It's the easiest thing in the world to do. 
It's not like somebody would ever say, you know, continue to work at that, that lazy streak you've got going. You know, I love the way you hold that couch down. It's just amazing. You don't say that to somebody because it's so natural, at least to me. You tell them, you encourage them, you command them to do things that are not easy. The culture in, in, the, in the city of Philippi was like this. You have this little fledgling Christian community surrounded by a Roman population that was pagan, um, very libertine in their, their, their lifestyle ethic. If it feels good, do it. Whatever kind of makes you happy, that's what you need to do. And then you have another culture, the Jewish culture, that was so resistant to the Romans that they had almost no interaction with them. They, were, they viewed the pagans as lost and hopeless and, and had no interaction at all with them. And then you have this little Christian community that is sort of in the middle. They share the Jewish life ethic of holiness, but they share a love for the Roman people because many of them were themselves Romans who had become converted and become Christian. And so Paul is trying to give them some real nuts and bolts sort of stuff here. In a culture that is, is pulled at the one end by a, um, a libertine uh, ethic and the other end at a very legalistic one, which has even crept into the church, and the church is uh, suffering from this, this legalistic ethic as well. So I want you to look at some of these sort of very basic things, okay? Look at verse 2. I entreat Yudia and I entreat Syntyche. I notice that nobody ever names their children Yudia or Syntyche. Have you ever known anybody named Yudia? Never. I entreat these women to agree in the Lord. I ask you also, true companion, I'm not sure who he's talking to here, help these women who have labored by my side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are recorded in the book of life. Yudia and Syntyche, two women who worked side by side with Paul. They were Christians. They, um, they, uh, they cared about Paul's ministry. They worked hard to support him. They were saints in the church. And yet, somehow, they were at odds with one another. There's some hostility between them. Um, and Paul is saying, no more. What does it mean to stand fast in the Lord? Well, part of what it means to Yudia and Syntyche is that there's no room for animosity, for adversarial relationships. There's no room to hold grudges against one another. That we work at getting along. <laughs> that we work at having unity in the church. Sometimes the only way to agree is to agree to disagree. But you can do so, I think Paul would say, in a way that's healthy. In a way that is respectful and decent. In a way that, that kind of works at reconciliation all the time. I think that's true for us as well, isn't it? That the church, if we're going to stand firm in the gospel, one of the things we have to do is we have to be a community that works always at reconciliation. Never allows a grudge to get in between one another. Always works for, for kindness and gentleness and decency. And sometimes when we disagree with one another to say, you know, well, we don't see things the same way, but I still love you. I still value you for the many things that you have to offer and for your, 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 your fellowship in the Lord. Okay, second one. Look at this one. Verse 4. This is from Charles Wesley's hymn, or Charles Wesley's hymn, rather, was taken from this line, right, that we sang this morning. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. Be joyful. I'll say it again. Be joyful. 
I, I like Peterson's translation here. Celebrate in the Lord. You know, make it make your life in the Lord a celebration. And perhaps you've noticed there are some people who think that Christianity is sort of um, a cipher for miserableness. <laughs> it's you have to be like dour and sad and never happy about anything. And Paul would say that is so wrong. Is so far afield from what real Christianity is about. The Christian community is to be a joyful community filled with with exuberance. That we ought to be some of the most cheerful, delightful, happy outgoing, give me some other synonyms, (laughs) we ought to be those kind of people. That's what we ought to be like. And reasonable. This um, This one's kind of tough here, isn't it? Reasonable. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It ought to be a catchword of Christians that they are reasonable, tolerant, forbearing people. And I think that if you look at the criticism of the church in our culture, it would be that we are anything but that oftentimes. That we are often not tolerant. That we are often not understanding. That we often are not uh, people who can be forbearing. We, we fight the heretics in the church. And we fight the culture outside of it. And that's not the image Paul gives to us. I was reading this Christian magazine and they were, they were talking about the, the absence of Christian comedians in the world. And they talked about how there are people in all forms of entertainment. We have musicians and people who are involved in, in other types of the arts, actors, and, and people who are in technical parts of the of entertainment industry. But almost a complete dearth of, of comedians. And, and he says this, Much of the church has embraced a hostile relationship with the surrounding culture. A culture war requires a group of people to define itself through a conflict and identify a rival group whose very existence threatens its existence. And once you have that that position, that we're against you, and you are against us, and we're going to fight this thing out, you have lost the ability to laugh. You've lost the ability to make fun of yourself, to be self-deprecating. And that is is a a death knell for the church. In terms of our our view, if we view ourselves as, as superior to other people, then we have no laughter, we have no joy, and we have no reasonableness. Let me, can I, can I make this really close to home? I mean, just, if you're a kind of person who doesn't like, just slide your feet underneath the, the pew. <laughs> you know, I won't step too hard. Okay, I know that many of us worry about the direction of our, our country. And I share that concern, I really do. I, I worry about where we're going But I think that taking the posture of warring against the culture is both unhelpful to the message of the gospel and it's unhelpful to the church as a whole. We're all imperfect beings. We should see people, whether they share our opinions or not, as valuable, as created in the image of God, as needing to be reconciled to God, not as opportunities for us to war against them. We ought to be joyful and generous. Last one. Verse 8. Look at this one with me. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Guard your minds 
and put into practice a Christian ethic that is consistent with what we see in the lives of the apostles. Paul puts himself out there as a, as a paradigm. What you've seen in me do. I don't know anybody else who is willing to put themselves in that position. I mean, do you say that? You know, do you say that to your friends? Oh, you should do what I do. You know, if only you would just follow. I mean, Paul's not being arrogant here, but he's saying there is a way to approach life in a culture that is hostile to Christianity that is not what you've seen before. It's not to war against it. It's not to be capitulating to it. It's like a tree that's planted firm and, and deep. It has deep roots and will not be swayed by the culture around it, but is not hostile to it at the same time. And what we think about, I mean, it'd be real easy. This, the real easy application here is the entertainment industry, isn't it? Oh, you could go after the sensual and the materialistic and, and so on and so on. Let me go to another place. What about the political the adversarial po- politics that we have in our society where it's always us against them. Good guys against the bad guys. And you know what? I've been in enough of your homes to know that some of you think the good guys are one people and some of you think the good guys are another people. The adversarial politics that we have that, that goes after one another, always making an enemy out of the other person, that is not the Christian ethic. That's not the way our minds ought to work. They ought to be filled with good things, with things about justice and, and, and health and wellness and goodness and God's mercy in the world and these sorts of things. It's about being positive. What does it mean to be rooted like a tree? It means to, to have a mindset that is, that is completely formed by the scriptures, by the faith of the, the apostles. You know, someday soon, and I don't know when, Maybe next year, maybe the year after, maybe five years down, might be ten years down the road. People are going to call me from Springfield and say, you know what, we're going to have a reunion. We're going to meet down at Snyder Park, you know, and, and we're, going to, we're going to have a, uh, a picnic and, um, and we'll have some fun, bring a Frisbee, you know, and we'll, we'll play out in the, in the, and, we'll, and we'll have a great time and, and we'll go down there. And you know what I'll find? They will have messed up the driving pattern yet again. It'll be even more restricted. You'll be able to get through only one way. The mermaid will still be missing from the lagoon. My beautiful old steel bridge with its blue-green patina is going to be gone. Some ugly gray monstrosity is going to be there in its place. There's still going to be no golfers coming through the park. But all those trees, man, those granite strong trees, they're still going to be there. So me casting shade, giving off oxygen, setting a beautiful scenery for that park. I think that's the metaphor Paul wants us to have. We should be like trees, like beautiful, granite-strong trees that are in the middle of the culture, they're in the middle of the church, and they're not swayed by it. They just continue to bring beauty and health and goodness to everyone who's around it. Do that, Paul says, and the God of peace will be always with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.